Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where you and your unique business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Rafiq Riyadh. Rafiq's appreciation for social enterprise as a business model that circumvents both the volatility of traditional development frameworks and the shortcomings of conventional corporate models led him to found Buy Good, Feel Good in 2014. Today, Buy Good, Feel Good is North America's largest marketplace dedicated to connecting social enterprises with buyers and consumers. Welcome to the podcast, Rafiq. It's a delight to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you. So you have written that you're passionate about an economy that is fair and just for all. So what does that mean to you? Um, it means a lot of things. It means um, basically at the core of it, it means that everyone involved in the supply chain of products and services are treated fairly and, and are benefiting from the production of these products and services, not just the, the company um, or the organization creating these products uh, and not only the customers using the products and services, but really everyone involved in the um, long supply chain of particularly products are benefiting and are equally um, are equally, yeah, are equally benefiting from, um, from the creation of these products and services. Mm, okay. Uh, well, I've been involved in the fair trade movement for quite a while. I'm on the board of a, a local uh, 10,000 Villages store. And 10,000 Villages, as I'm sure you know, longstanding fair trade organization. And I, so how do you ensure that kind of supply chain? And, and uh, I'm not asking on behalf of 10,000 Villages, but just as a, a, as a general way of building that kind of business with that level of attention to the supply chain, which not every business has. Um, well, it, it's not an easy, it's not an easy process. And, and um, mm-hmm. um, I think it starts with knowing who is making the product and having personal relationship with them. Um, is knowing what is a living wage for the communities where the products are made. And, and we're typically talking about products uh, that are made uh, outside of North America in hmm. specific um, to in, in countries, in thir- third world countries or developing countries, is having this personal relationship between the makers uh, of the products that you're, you're selling. Uh, there are, um, as I'm sure you know, there are um, a handful of really, really solid organizations that certify businesses and products as, as being fair trade. Um, so what we depend on in most cases when we're choosing brands and, and, and businesses to, um, to interact with, we really depend on the verification process and the certification process that they go through with these third-party organizations. Um, not everyone who is at fair trade is certified or verified by third-party organizations. But if you are planning on um, building a brand, 
you're making a product and there are parts of this product or, or the full product is, is made in an area that you do not have access to and control over um, the overall environment where the product is made, I really encourage you to dig a little bit deeper, get to know where are the materials sourced, what kind of, if, you're, if, it's, um, if it's an agriculture product, what kind of wages are being paid, what kind mm -hmm. of working environment, working hours, um, and then look at it from the lens of people living in these communities. Um, a common mistake is, is going in with a North American uh, lens and, and, and seeing what is it that we're used to here and, and trying to replicate that in different communities. Um, it's important to get a good understanding of what the living situations are in these communities. And, and a good piece of advice is always try to partner with local organizations that are dedicated to creating safe and, and um, safe work environments and, 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 um, and are uh, promoting child labor free uh, work environments and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're, um, it's great that you're, uh, you delve into it in that level of detail because that, that free trade or free, fair trade certification is not a, not a perfect solution. It's not an, a completely perfect process. So it's, it's good to open it up a little bit further. And you've been involved in fair trade work for quite a while. You founded SALT, an organization that was involved in fair trade with marginalized communities before. Tell us a bit about how you got into that work and then how you came to start Buy Good, Feel Good. So um, I, I grew up in Egypt and um, like a lot of developing countries, it's uh, the the, the difference between the have and the have-nots is quite stark. And, and um, I grew up in a middle-class family. Um, my parents, both my parents had university education. They both had small cars that we used to go to school and then run errands and so on. Um, but I remember from a very young age, while being in the car with my mom, looking at people who didn't have cars and were running behind uh, a bus that was super crowded with people that it didn't even stop at the bus stop and people were jumping on and off. Mm. And I always wondered like, why don't they have a car like us? Um, and then I got to learn that some, this is what was my first encounter with the word poverty and, and, and resources and, and people not having the same um, income or disposable income. And I, I was very interested from a very young age to what, what did I do to deserve that? And what did they do to deserve that? And, and I yeah. looked unfair to me, to be honest. Looked, mm -hmm. um, I did not do anything more than, probably they are doing a lot more than I am doing in my life. And they're still not getting the same access to resources that I have. Mm -hmm. um, I graduated from university and, and um, I pursued a career in international development. Um, so I worked for years and years with... Um, international donors, um, organizations like the USAID, the uh, CEDA back then, the Canadian Development Agency, and many more um, on development projects. And I was extremely lucky to have worked on really, really successful projects, providing access to water and sanitation and electricity and, and healthcare to marginalized communities in Egypt. But I've also witnessed projects that as soon as the donor 
program pulled out, the whole project died. There was absolutely no sustainability and, and the project failed to really respond to what people needed. Um, mm. And back in maybe 2010, this is when I got introduced to the concept of social entrepreneurship. And I started to become a strong believer in the power of economically empowering communities to make their own decisions and to pursue their own, in quotation marks, development. Mm -hmm. um, I moved to Canada in 2011 and I started uh, SALT. And I was primarily working with uh, marginalized communities in, in Egypt. And then with my business partner, we expanded to um, communities in East Africa and Latin America. And we were, um, we were basically providing them with um, access to a market that they wouldn't have access to otherwise. Right. So we imported products, got the products to Pearson um, in Toronto and um, yeah, and tried, and I would put a big line under tried <laughs> to sell these products on their behalf. Um, yeah, so that's how, how SALT started. Um, then I did that for maybe a couple of years. Uh, I've learned a lot from that experience. I'm sure, yeah. Um, and I think the biggest learning was that we back then in Canada were missing a platform for businesses like SALT to grow. Um, hmm. When I looked around at what kind of support was provided to social enterprises, uh, there were some funding, uh, there was um, definitely a lot of organizations uh, offering guidance on uh, supply chain management and, and fair trade certification and, and B Corp was starting to, uh, to become popular. Right. Um, but I did not find any organization that helped me sell. So I had the products. They were very much verified fair trade as far as I was concerned. I knew these communities for years and worked uh, directly with them. Mm -hmm. um, but I had the products in, my, in Canada and in the back of my car and, and I had an online store and I was just sitting there looking at the online store every single day and there was very little movement on it. Right. Um, so yeah. So, so, so buy good, feel good is really arose out of being able to or wanting to provide a platform for that or sales. Absolutely. So, um, so after a couple of years uh, working with SALT, um, I, I decided to shift my attention to creating a platform for other social enterprises to really connect with the consumers that um, they're after. Um, mm -hmm. when, I was, when I had SALT, I had products that I wanted to sell. So I did what most um, entrepreneurs would do. I had a a Shopify online store and, and tried to do a little bit of online digital marketing. Mm -hmm. um, did a lot of events and markets and, and, and farmers markets. Always had products and a folding table in the back of my car and every single, <laughs> every single, every single opportunity that I had that had five people or more, there was a folding table that came out of my car and products wow. on it. Uh, That's grassroots. Very <laughs> grassroots. <laughs> yeah. Like birthdays, uh, weddings, you name it. We did everything. Oh, uh... <laughs> um, and, and, and I realized that I was struggling. I was not creating the impact that I wanted to create in terms of volume of sales. Um, and, and I got to meet 
other social entrepreneurs and, and other brands that were also struggling. And I didn't want all of us to go out of business because we could not sell. Mm-hmm. So in 2014, um, I rented a small um, ballroom uh, in, in, a, in a boutique hotel in, in, in the east, uh, sorry, in the west end of Toronto. It's called the Gladstone Hotel. I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. know it or not. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those hip, hip and happening kind of yes, places. So, yeah. yeah. And, and <laughs> I rented a few tables and for maybe six months where I was calling fair trade brands in Canada, mostly in Toronto and, and other social enterprises, convincing them to give us a try and, and be part of this event. Um, funny enough, you're involved with 10,000 Villages. 10,000 Villages Canada was the first one to say yes. Oh, interesting. Uh, we'll come to this event. And, and once they were there, um, and I could tell other brands on the phone, 10,000 Villages Canada are coming. Um, it made it a lot easier. And, um, and yeah, we started the first event in 2014 um, with maybe 15 vendors, uh, mostly in Toronto. And we advertise the event, uh, very grassroots as well. Like days and days I was going, walking by the streets of Toronto, distributing flyers and mm. going to coffee shops and doing um, doing events in schools and telling people about fair trade and social enterprises. And, um, and it was a fantastic event. It was, um, and still is probably one of my proudest moments this uh, mm. October, 2014, at the Gladstone Hotel. That's great. Well, and, and it's expanded beyond that. You've had lar- larger and larger expos since then. And you, you actually, in the course of describing that, you you talked and you spoke in response to one of the questions I had. And in the situation that you're in, where you're so focused on providing a platform for other vendors, one option in terms of a business model is that you could have gone the nonprofit route as opposed to social entrepreneur. And I'm curious about why you chose the social entrepreneur um, approach for your business. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And, 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 and to be honest, for the first couple of years, so many people that I spoke with said, why are you not not-for-profit? There are so many resources that you can access as a not-for-profit in Canada mm-hmm. and like all these grants and I know I could, and, and it would not change much in the way everyday uh, business is going. Um, mm-hmm. But it was really against what I believed in. And, and what I was trying mm-hmm. to promote is that for-profit business can do good. Um, traditionally, doing good was, um, was the job of governments or was the job of aid organizations and then... Right. And then came the not-for-profit sector and then came charities. And and we have seen, or at least I have seen firsthand, um, when when you have development that is focused on bilateral relations between countries with any change of governments, priorities change and Mm. funding changes. With any economic recession, the first people to suffer are not-for-profit and charities. Businesses do because they're for profit and, and because they have um, they have the flexibility to pivot and and um, and to better respond to ongoing changes. Um, 
I, I believe they are better suited in delivering good, in delivering um, social good for everyone. So mm. I really wanted to lead by example and, and, and being a for-profit business that is, um, that is a social enterprise and, and that has um, objectives and ambitions beyond commercial uh, benefit. Yeah, and there are opportunities there that aren't necessarily in the in the not-for-profit sector. I, I think sometimes those kinds of organizations get caught because their funding depends on short-term outcomes that are not always achievable or not necessarily in the best interest of, of who they're trying to serve. So you have a lot more flexibility with that. Absolutely. Them. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about how your business model works because you really have two... In a way, you have two sets of customers. You have the vendors themselves, these companies that you're providing a platform for, and then there are the buyers of the actual products. So how do you make that model work in, in terms of, you know, how are you doing that? And at the same time, honoring the values that you talk about, like fair trade and zero waste and women's empowerment, it's a lot in the mix to, to handle. It is. Um, in terms of values, the values that we believe in could look from the outside as a lot, but in, in reality, um, I think they all come together under social justice and, 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 and fairness and, and, mm -hmm. and empowerment and providing opportunity. Um, so staying true to the values, uh, even though they might seem quite, quite a few values that we're trying to align with, has been the easiest part um, and, and has been the most enjoyable part of, of, of the business. And then, for example, when we were, um, when we were uh, doing in-person events and expos uh, back in 2019, uh, we tried to, other than the vendors that we were hosting, but every single service provider that we worked with, uh, we tried to, um, as much as possible, stay true to our values. Um, if we were providing entertainment, we engaged uh, organizations working with at-risk youth, for example, in Toronto, that provided um, the entertainment. If we were providing food and beverage, we worked with other social enterprises. Uh, the event was thrive, striving to be zero waste. Um, so the values has not been a challenge to adhere to. I think mm -hmm. the biggest challenge is that we've always had two audiences. Um, as you yeah. said, we always had the businesses that we work with and the brands, and we also had the audience of the general customers that attend these events. Um, it gets a little bit tricky when, when you have one social media outlet and when you have um, yeah. one newsletter, like you're talking to two completely different audiences. So that mm -hmm. was a challenge. Um, and, um, and I think it took us some time to find a balance where we came up with messaging that was equally engaging and interesting for both our audiences. We, we, moved, we moved away from marketing our events to like come exhibit with us or come attend the expo. Uh, we do a little bit of come attend the expo maybe a few weeks before the event. Mm -hmm. uh, but throughout the year, we're really talking about what brings these two groups together, which is um, 
the values and, and the aspiration in, in a better world. Um, yeah. And that's how you, we managed to, um, to do it. Well, and you have a time separation there. Obviously, your exhibitors you want to have lined up before you, yes. at least substantially before it, for an expo, before you start to put the word out to people attending. And also, you've got an online platform as well. So there's, there's kind of an ongoing so, so yes, so the online platform is actually a recent pivot. Um, hmm. We just launched in August. Ah, okay. Uh, is that relate, related to the pandemic? Because I know that you had two expos planned this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what? so many businesses have had to make big adjustments like that. Yes, so. yes. Uh, we, um, we had to cancel all our shows in, in 2020, and, and we were planning three shows, one in Toronto and two in Los Angeles area. Um, and I realized two things. First of all, we as a business, as Buy Good, Feel Good, took a massive financial hit. Uh, but we also failed if we did not do anything and we just waited to see how this pandemic will, will unfold. Yeah. Um, we really failed the, the group of businesses and brands that entrusted us to support them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the decision came like very, very quickly. Let's... I was scarred from salt back in 2011 when I had a, an online store. And not scarred. <laughs> scarred in what way? Scarred in, in, in understanding how difficult it is to, um, to get traffic on an online store. And, and, yeah. and once you get that traffic, how difficult is it to convert? And once you convert, how difficult it is to get repeat customers. Yeah. Um, it's a crowded world. It yeah. is. And it's so. become increasingly, though, um, yeah. during the during and after and, and uh, the pandemic. Sure. Um, so yeah, in, in August, we decided, uh, even though we did not have the most successful experience with e-commerce in the past, but the time has come for us to um, take the platform that we've built the past six or seven years um, and, and have it online until we are um, allowed and able in a safe way uh, to have in-person events. Mm. Well, and it's a potential source of income, and if you can if you can figure it out, then you have that stream of income coming in. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> there's all of this makes me kind of think of the whole social enterprise movement and how things have been changing globally, not just due to the pandemic, but over the past several years in particular. I think business itself is shifting. You mentioned you know, B Corps and, and various organizations that support companies that are really interested in, in uh, social impact, um, environmental impact. So, and you've also lived in a number of countries. You've been in Egypt, I, I believe the UK, Canada, now the US. How have you seen this social enterprise movement changing globally? How have you seen that evolving? Um. It's definitely growing. It is definitely growing. I remember very clearly in 2011 when I started SALT and I was looking at other social enterprises to, to see what they're doing and to chat with them. Um, the list was not that great. When I started 2014, the Buy Good, Feel Good events, and I started to create a database of, of companies that I could reach out to, um, it was a limited It was a limited list. So there is, there is definitely a growing appetite from both the supply side, from brands to to become more socially responsible and, and, and 
and, and, and to have that feel good about their products and, and, and their, that give back that is related to their business operations, whether this is coming from um, their own core values and belief or whether that is a, in response to a growing demand, which is something that we've been witnessing as well. Mm -hmm. um, in the expos, we, as you can um, tell, we work with both the supply and the demand side. So one year we're struggling to get brands and then the next year we're struggling to get people to come to the show. And, and then mm -hmm. we've seen gr growth on both ends of the equation. Um, and what's happening with the social entrepreneurship movement now really reminds me of uh, what, how corporate social responsibility started back in the 90s. Um, mm. in, 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 I remember when I was working back in Egypt um, for the government in, in the year 2000, I went to my boss and I said, uh, we, we can do this and I would like us to do this project and this project and this project. And he said, oh, but yeah, these are all great projects, but funding is very limited can you find alternative sources of funding? And I said, yeah, let's go to the private sector. Um, and kind, kind of the, a radical idea in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> like linking, linking government and business wasn't that common. Still I know. Like, you know. And, 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 and there was a lot of fear as well. Like, like who are we going to associate with? And, and, and uh, uh, how would that work? Um, and, and that was the time when people were talking about corporate social responsibility. And then I went to a few uh, major multinationals based in Cairo. And I said like, hey, these are environmental projects that we are looking for partners for. Um, and, and it hit me that I was talking to the marketing people or the PR department or mm -hmm. even a third party publicist. And that, and these people were handling CSR. Um, and that was obviously back then. And then they had to do a, a CSR report. And then they realized, all right, if we're doing a report every year, we might as well hire someone to do that. And, if they ha and when they hired someone, um, they started doing really good things. Um, and I think we're seeing the same in the social entrepreneurship space. There are amazing brands out there that to the core are... Um, are really working to change how things are done and are really working to benefit everyone involved in the operations. Uh, and there are still brands that are seeing this as a marketing, um, marketing opportunity. So they have on their website, how we give back. And then you look at it and you say like, okay, you're giving one for one, for example. Um, but how were the products made and where were they made and who was involved? Yes. In yeah, it gets into the whole supply chain exactly, question. Exactly. Um, yeah. But what I've seen as well was when people started, and I'm using this term loosely, faking social responsibility or faking yeah. uh, giving back, uh, mm -hmm. most of them with time shifted to really, really changing the way they were doing business. Um, mm. It used to frustrate me when I see a company promoting their doing good and and um and it was clear for me that they can do a lot more and, and and it's just for marketing purposes that they're doing what they're doing but yes. i've seen them throughout over the years um change how they were doing business to really reflect what they were promoting back then so, yeah that's great to hear yeah so it's definitely growing it's definitely growing on both ends and i think more more and more customers are um are demanding 
a little bit more transparency than the generation of our parents, for example, mm -hmm. or even our own generation. We we bought things and we didn't know where they came from and, and sure. didn't care and we didn't learn that we should care. Um, well, yeah. and there's so much there's so much more awareness. I know uh, you you're aware of the study too. There was a study done by IBM in 2019 of I think almost 20,000 consumers where they looked at. Um, how interested are people in sustainability and environmentally um, low impact products? And it was extraordinarily high. It was like almost 80% of people had some level of interest and almost half of them had were very interested in that in terms of making brand choices. So I think that's a shifting, uh, certainly in that study. And I've also seen myself in the last five years, things have really shifted in that direction. <laughs> And I think, as you said, it's just a matter of awareness and education. How could you not be, if you're presenting, presented with two products, one that is positively affecting people in the environment and one that is negatively affecting people in the environment, if you know this, I bet you 100% will choose the product that is making everyone else happy, right? Um, Obviously, there is. Do you think so? Because there's always going to be very cost-conscious people, so that, that, folks who are. Yes. and I, I was going to, yeah, I was going to tap on that. Obviously, um, obviously, there is the issue of cost, and and um, and I I look at the cost issue two ways. One way is the practical way, uh, which is yes, what you buy cheap. Um, has negatively affected people in the environment. If you don't care, that's fine. Uh, you think you've made a winning buying something that is cheap, but the quality and then how long it would last and how often you would need to replace it in the long run. And then definitely that is true with fast fashion. Um, on the long run, you're not saving money. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing, the other side of it is, is tapping into people's sense of fairness. Um, I'm sure you've watched uh, the true cost. Um, and and the, my biggest takeaway of, out of this, this movie was um, everything has a cost. And um, either you choose to pay the true price or you buy a product that someone else has paid for. Yeah. Uh, with their happiness, with their environment, with their... Yeah. Their health. Uh, health, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, have, I haven't seen that movie. I'm, I'm, uh, I will include it in the show notes and I will watch it myself. Sounds like a really worthwhile watching. Yeah, and, and uh, speaking of movies, um, I'm not sure um, if it's still, um, if it's um, widely available yet, um, but there's an amazing uh, documentary called The Rise of the Social Entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically in this documentary, they, they follow four or five social entrepreneurs for maybe a period of a year or two. And then they see, um, they, they follow them every step from sourcing products to traveling to the communities where products are made to trying to market products. And, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the social enterprises that were featured in, in this documentary, one of their marketing um, activities was, were, was coming to uh, the Buy Good Feel Good Expo in Toronto. So the film crew followed them to the expo. It was quite nice mm. to, be, to be part of it. But it also shows that on the 
supply side, more and more entrepreneurs are really interested in, in when they are getting into business and creating business that uh, positively impacts everyone around them. Yeah. Well, it's encouraging to see. And um, it, it makes me think about um, what, how that translates into a company's culture. And I'd love to explore that a little bit with your company. How, how do you take the values that you talk about in terms of your customers and make that part of the fabric of the culture of a company? Um, <clears throat> you mean internally with, 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 with our team? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're a very, very, very lean organization. We're a very small team. Um, and the beauty in doing what we're doing is that we attract people who really believe um, in, in the values and in the cause. Um, we, I don't, I don't know how to explain our work culture. I think that's a good question to ask the team on the next call. Um, <laughs> we all... I think I would like I would like to believe that um, everyone feels em, feels um, empowered to voice their opinions. Um, mm. I am a huge believer in if you you have a great idea and we all think it's a great idea, go ahead and do it. And 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 if it's a great idea, that's fantastic. If it ended up not being that great, it's also fantastic. We've learned from it and put it on the, on the books in the not so great ideas. Let's not do this again. Um, right. As my background was, was never, um, was never organizing trade shows um, or events for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I had to, to learn everything from YouTube um, and I think this is the same culture that we're, uh, as a team, share. There are, mm-hmm. We are all doing things that we have not done before. And, I, and I'm sure all young entrepreneurs and, and social entrepreneurs, when resources are really tight, you can't afford to, from day one, hire a bookkeeper and hire a digital marketing person and hire a sure. social media person. So you go on YouTube and say, how to do bookkeeping and how to build the website on WordPress. And um, so we have, uh, I think we all have fun learning together. Um, And we started recently um, a Friday, um, a Friday meeting where um, if anyone has been doing something that worked and figured it out, we we just shared that knowledge on on these Friday meetings. So we've dedicated a time on Friday where it's team learning and team training, and that can come from anyone on the team. Well, and that's part of being part of a early stage, fairly early stage and small company is that you have a lot of flexibility to fill different roles and you get an opportunity to influence things in a way that you don't in a larger organization. So are there ways that you're you're intentionally in your mind, you wanna make sure What's one thing that you always want to make sure happens in your interactions with your team? Is there a way that you want to make sure you're interacting with them in a in a way that is going to be positive? Um, good question. I um, I, I think if there is one thing that I'm always focused on is um, 
what was the learning from what we just did. Uh, I'm really mm -hmm. focused on, um, I think we will only grow when we try things and, and, and when we doc document the learnings. And, and whether these learnings were positive or negative, it's still a learning. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I, I think the one thing that I would say is um, I focus on creating the space for us to share these learnings. Mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that culture plays a role, that that constant learning focus plays a role, and leadership also plays a role. You, you were in the midst of a, a, a growth into um, having expos in LA where you'd previously um, had them more uh, locally and then went beyond that. And what, what do you do as a leader of that process of that growth that um, you intentionally do that, that really helps you be a better leader? Are there ways that you think about that or is it intuitive for you? Um, I'm not sure if I understood the question, but one thing that comes to mind and, and um, if it's not the answer to your question, let me know. Um, yeah. I, it is hard to stay motivated when, um, when you're running a small business and, and, and it's not, and it's, um, it's hard to stay motiv motivated when um, you're focused on, on supporting other small and struggling businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that, and, and as you said, we went from finally in 2019, I felt like, Finally, this is this is working. This is working. We had yeah. one annual show in Toronto up to 2019, 2020. We planned three, two of them international, and they were almost fully booked. Um, mm -hmm. So we went from that to, oh, we have zero shows, and now we're a startup again. We're learning e-commerce. Um, <laughs> so one thing that keeps us all motivated and positive throughout all of this is the conversations that we have with, with the brands that we work with. Um, it is just like, I could be having the worst day work-wise and get on a phone call and what, with one of the brands and, and, and hear them talk about what they're doing and the, the impact that they're creating and the communities that they're supporting. Mm. And it just makes it all worth it. And, and, and if I have these conversations, I make sure that, I relay it to the team so that we're all focused on why we're doing this and why we're going through the pains of, um, of a startup from uh, once again. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's inspiring to hear these stories and it really brings it brings the focus of the purpose at home when you hear stories from individual customer companies, which is great. Well, Rafika, I always end these interviews with uh, a rapid round of three questions about impact. Are you, are you ready to do that? I am. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Uh, the biggest thing that I've learned about having impact um, is that it is an evolving process. Um, I've learned what is impact today could not could could be not as impactful tomorrow, and 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 it, it's a very um, it's a very evolving concept, and an impact is really dependent on um, the people that you work with and how they they feel that impact as well. 
Mm, yeah, it's really a co-creation process. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the second question is, what's one thing that you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Um, I take time to reflect on things. Um, and, and yeah, I would say being reflective. Um, and I think, again, that kept us as a team motivated and, and kept me as, um, as a business owner um, more and more focused to continue the work that we're doing uh, is, mm. is reflect on where we were, where we are now, and how many people we've, um, we've touched. Mm. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, the last question is, what's one insight or piece of advice you'd give to another entrepreneur who's thinking, I want to have impact. I want to contribute more. What would you say to them? Um, one thing <laughs> that could be a problem. <laughs> Whatever um, pops into your mind first. Yeah, I, I would say get, get to know, focus on what impact, what, what, what you think the impact you want to, um, to make and, and get to know, um, get to know the people and get to know the, the communities and the people or, um, the environment that you want to create that impact. Um, mm. we are often, we come into situations like this with our own understanding and prejudices um, and, and for impact to be really uh, meaningful and genuine and sustainable, it has to be, as you brilliantly mentioned, co-created. It has to be, um, it cannot be you creating an impact. It's, it's like you facilitating an impact rather. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't believe I've ever heard anyone's answer the question in that way. I think that's great to really connect with the people that you want to have, uh, that you want to have benefit from what you're doing. That's great. Well, Rafiq, thank you so much for being here and for sharing the story of your own evolution as a social entrepreneur and your experiences with uh, building an organization. And uh, I know it's going to be really interesting and inspiring for people to hear who are thinking along those lines as well. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. I absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you. Great. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, I would say email. So uh, Rafik, that's R-A-F-I-K at bygoodfeelgood.com mm -hmm. um, or bygoodfeelgood.com, the website. And, and then there is a contact form that, um, that comes straight to me. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Rafiq, and thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you so much, and thank you for having us. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at WorkAlchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes, subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.